Hear God's word from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. Here in Mark, we see a variety of responses to who Jesus is. Mark has been laying out for us the unrolling of the kingdom of God as Jesus has been proclaiming it in the region of Galilee. Last week, we saw the disciples didn't recognize Jesus on the water, and we saw that the people of Gennesaret did recognize him and flocked to him. We see another response here from the Pharisees this week. The response of the Pharisees this week is rejection of Jesus because they've rejected God's word. We also see there's a growing conflict. No longer is it just local Capernaum or Galilee Pharisees who are opposing Jesus. They're calling in backup. See that in verse 1. Jerusalem, scribes from Jerusalem are now set against Jesus. And we'll see that Jerusalem is the place where Mark's narrative follows Jesus and where he will be killed. It's headquarters. They're calling in support. It's kind of like an ominous mention of a detective from Washington being put on a local case here in Ohio. This passage opens up with a seemingly small matter. Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders? Maybe they thought Jesus had his own way of disciples washing their hands. After all, this was a tradition of the elders. But Jesus turns it into a very significant issue. He escalates it quickly and rightfully so because the deeper issue he exposes is grave. And it's a heart cancer on the part of the Pharisees. So we're going to look at two charges in this passage. And then we're going to look at two constitutions, and then we're going to look at two conditions. Two charges, two constitutions, and then two conditions. That'll be our structure tonight. We'll look at the two charges. The first one is brought from the Pharisees against Jesus' disciples, and the second one is brought from Jesus against the Pharisees. The first one from the Pharisees to the disciples has to do with washing, and Jesus to the Pharisees has to do with Corban. The tradition of the elders is what the Pharisees cite. And they say, why do your disciples not eat with washed hands? Their hands are defiled. And there are three words for wash 
that Mark lays out for us. Mark, you'll see there in verses 3, 4, and 5 gives us a, excuse me, verses 3 and 4 gives us a parenthetical to explain this tradition. And he talks about washing of various kinds. And he actually uses three words for wash as he explains this. And what that does is it shows there is real intricate detail in the way that they go about their washing. First of all, uh, Mark explains about the cleansing of hands before eating. It has to do with cleansing the fist. Nobody really knows what that means, but it has to do with a detailed way of washing hands. And they don't see the disciples doing this. After all, in the last passage, we saw Jesus feeding the 5,000. The disciples were eating. Maybe some people were there and saw that they weren't washing their hands properly. And then there's also the cleansing that happens when they come from the marketplace. And the word for this is really sprinkling. Why don't your disciples sprinkle themselves, shower themselves after they come from the marketplace? Because in the marketplace, there are all kinds of impurities and defilements. How can you eat after being in such a dirty place? And then lastly, there is the the baptizing of pots and cups and dining couches. And a type of absolving, almost maybe sterilizing these cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So what the Pharisees have done is set up quite a system. They're so pure in their eyes that they go so far as to cleanse not only themselves, but also the instruments with which they eat and the very things on which they sit. None of these have to do with hygiene primarily. These are all ritual purities that the tradition of the elders had set up so that one might rightfully come and eat a certain way in the presence of the community or in the temple. It also says here at the end of verse 4, and many such things do they do. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups. What a system! Oh, how ritually, ritually pure these Pharisees must be. Good for them, maybe. But this is only according to the tradition of the elders. And the disciples are being accused of not doing any of these. They ate bread with defiled, uncleansed hands, and maybe with unbaptized pots and dining couches, too. That's charge number one. The next charge comes from Jesus to the Pharisees. This is, comes at the end of our passage. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you are upholding Corbin, which we'll explain here, which is direct disobedience to the fifth commandment. This is a big deal that the new teacher would be accusing the best law keepers of the day, the Pharisees, accusing them of disobedience. Now to say Corbin is a, an immediate vow. If, if you vow Corbin over your money, your money whatever you vow Corbin over, is dedicated to God. It's given to God. It's promised to him. It would become a donation to the use of God's temple. It was a binding word, and it would lock in an unbreakable vow. So if a son vowed Corbin to his belongings, specifically in verse 11, the example Mark gives, is if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, If he takes what he was supposed to use to support his parents in their own age and vows it to God, he's removing it from their use. Whatever was given as Corbin, it it did remain in possession of the giver, but it was kept out of reach of other people. So someone who didn't want to give their resources, their home or their money to their parents in their old age could vow it as Corbin and then use it the rest of their life and then donate it to the temple when they die. Like a something that's disbursed upon death, a bequest payable on death, something like that, maybe a scholarship fund. These things look good. 
These things sound like religiosity and dedication and devotion. It's giving to God after all. And it's keeping your word, right? You made a vow. I vowed, Corbin, I'm going to give this to God. But the Pharisees ensured that nobody ever broke Corbin, even if their parents needed it. And Jesus calls them out. He says, you are breaking the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is to honor your father and your mother. A child's responsibility to his parents is to care for them, to uphold their dignity at all times, even in their old age, including not just putting up with them, but generously caring for them. Whether Corbin was vowed out of spite for the parents, which may not have even been the majority of cases, or whether it was just out of a desire to secure the funds for one's own use, there's still an underlying dishonoring of parents because it is a sacrifice to keep the commands. It's withholding If somebody does what Mark explains in verse 11, vows Corbin, it's withholding care that ought to be given, and it's a failure to love. It's a failure to extend kindness. It's a rebellion. It's a lack of reverence. And so Jesus is accusing them of a lack of love behind the commandment to honor the father and mother. And instead, this new tradition, Corbin, becomes a religious excuse to break God's law. So these are the two charges. First of all, the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of defilement for failing to follow the tradition's ritual cleansings. And then Jesus accuses the Pharisees of breaking the fifth commandment by introducing and enforcing Corbin, which enables a person to forsake his duty to his parents. Now, these two charges come from two different constitutions. The constitution of the Pharisees is called the tradition of the elders. They argue from the tradition of the elders. Jesus, however, argues from Scripture. We'll look at these in more detail. We see the phrase tradition of the elders a handful of times in our passage. The word tradition is used five times in this passage, and the Pharisees themselves even say, why don't they wash according to the tradition of the elders? They know that this is not in the the Torah in the Old Testament. They say it is from the tradition. Quite a complex system. But we see, if you look in Scripture, there are really only two washings required. One is for the priests, and only one is for common people. And for the priests, before they enter the tabernacle, that's not the issue at hand. That's not what they're complaining about. Or it's uh, for, for common people, when someone had touched a bodily discharge. That also is not the issue at hand. So what they're talking about is from the tradition of the elders. You may remember the strict Jewish religious leaders had created a system of laws in addition to God's law. In fact, they went so far as to say that when Moses was up on the mountain... God gave him the Ten Commandments, God gave him the law, but he also verbally, orally gave him the Mishnah, which was another whole tradition of laws that they used to set up a fence around God's law so that they would never get to break God's law. It may be well-intentioned, but by creating a dozen do-nots around one of God's law, that one law has been drained of its heart. There's nothing left of God's character to see in the law, nothing left to train our hearts because we're simply modifying our behavior. Do this, don't do this. Becomes a religion of rules. They believed, once again, that this tradition had been given to Moses, and so they were going to great lengths to try to validate their tradition. But we see the prestige of this tradition actually diminishes as we read. When Jesus starts talking about this tradition, he uses a different phrase, not the tradition of the elders. That sounds kind of, sounds like it has authority, sounds nice. When Jesus talks about it, he calls it, the tradition of men in verse 8. Just men. Compared to the commandment of God, this is the tradition of men. And then 
In verse 9, he diminishes it always down, all the way down to just your tradition. So to them, it's the great tradition of the elders that has been passed down, but Jesus sees it as just your tradition. Jesus' constitution, instead, is a much firmer foundation. And it is scripture. It is God's word. He quotes Moses. And he quotes Isaiah. In verse 10, it says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. This is Exodus 20 and Exodus 21. We're talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about God's law. The writings of the Pentateuch were inspired by God the Spirit. They were the means by which God spoke to his people. And in Exodus 21, we see that it is important because whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. This is set within the context of the relationship between slave and master and includes a proper relationship and honoring of all authorities, from father and mother to government authority to even employment bosses. But Jesus uses this as an example. He's, he's not concern, he is concerned with breaking the fifth commandment, but he uses it as an example of the much deeper issue going on in the Pharisee's heart. They don't understand the heart of the law. They think that by doing the acceptable thing, Corbin, they're honoring God because that's easier to do in your heart. The weightier issue of love for parents has now been replaced by the less important tradition of Corbin, and Jesus is pointing out that they do not care about the weightier issues of the law. Oh, how quickly we can come up with these reasons to disobey or honor our parents or our authorities. How quickly we, how quick we are to say, I have an issue with authority. That's just how I am. And then when we say so, we reveal that we have issues even with God's authority. So as Jesus is starting to break into the heart issue behind this, He says, many such things you do in verse 13. It's not just Corbin. It's many things that you do. There's a problem with their relationship to God's word. There's a problem with their relationship to God. So Jesus assesses the situation in verse 8, and there are three parallels here in verse 8. Leave the commandment of God, hold to the tradition of man. Leave and hold. They are choosing to leave one and to hold to the other a willful act, and they're leaving the commandment of God to cling to the tradition of man. There is authority in a commandment, but there is not in a tradition which can be shallow and weak. And worst of all, it is leaving the commandment of God for the, for the tradition of man. Who's the focus of your religion? Is it man or is it God? Who do you worship? Is it God or is it yourself? The Pharisees missed the heart of God and the law and they turned it into a behavior modification assignment that they were good at. And it led to their earthly success. The core problem is man-based religion versus God-honoring religion. There's no love, no love for or submission to God himself in these Pharisees' approach. Instead, they use God as a means to bolster their own pride. So let's look then at the conditions, the two conditions. And these are the heart conditions. There's the heart condition of the Pharisees, and then there's the heart condition that Jesus is is promoting. Jesus accuses them scathingly in verses 6 and 7. He says, well, did I... This is dripping with, with, uh, not sarcasm. He, He is really biting 
at their heart here. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me in vain. Do they worship me? And if we look in verse nine, he says it even further. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. He has taken this straight to the heart. And the heart issue for the Pharisees is they're saying the right thing, but they're not worshiping. They're doing the things that look righteous, but without any heart behind it. For Israel, some things haven't changed. God has had this issue with his people for a long time and continues to have this issue even with the church today. So we must be cognizant of this tendency and also check our own motivations. Look, Isaiah, or listen to Isaiah 114. God says, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. Or in Hosea 6, God says, for I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is an issue of humility. And then in Amos 5, it's the most biting. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. The showiest worship is not what God wants. The Pharisees hold to the tradition of man as if they're God's commandments, and they totally miss the heart. They've set up Corbin, and many such things do they do. They've turned the 613 commands of the Torah into exponentially more, pounding the law into a powder until the laws were deprived of life and were used to beat those who couldn't keep it or were used to make them feel good, the keepers of the law, because they had lifeless, modified behavior that made them look religious. But Jesus says, their heart is far from me. In vain, they are worshiping. They've taken the easy route. It is harder to keep one command of God that requires the heart than it is to follow a hundred traditional rules that are simply changing our actions. It is harder to follow the one command with its requirements of the heart. Here's Christ's point. Here's the proper heart condition. Christ points out that the externals, the doctrines, the words, the ritual purity, none of this matters if the heart is not engaged. They're not useless, but they are useless on their own. And he upholds instead the commandment of God. Now, when we hear the word commandment, we, we balk. We don't like commands. They feel like they... Uh, impinge upon our freedom. We hesitate. We don't like being told what to do. So what is Jesus getting at? What's his instruction as he's relating this to the commandment of God? How do we engage with a commandment at the heart level? What Jesus did, instead of taking the 613 commands of the Torah, really the 10 commandments, and multiplying them into multiples, hundreds, thousands, what he did is he took it down to two. He's taking it the other way so that we can see that there is a heart and there is a core behind all of God's law. He boils them down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. 
The whole point of these commands and of these laws was to love, and the Pharisees have missed every bit of it. All the law and the prophets together can be summed. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Mark's going to get there in Mark chapter 12 with the teacher of the law who did get it. When all the other teachers of the law weren't, this one did. But we'll wait for Mark 12 to dive into that deeper. So all of us is in one of two places in relationship to the law. There are two positions by which we relate to the law. Specifically, the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the Ten Commandments. Because, you know, Commandments 1 through 4 teach us how to love God. And Commandments 5 through 10 teach us how to love our neighbor. So when Jesus is talking about these, we have to assess what is our relationship to these commands. Maybe, like the Jews, you're feeling the overwhelming weight of the law. It's too much to bear. So either you ignore it, say it doesn't matter, it's old, it's outdated, or you minimize it into laws that you are able to follow. And so the secular world that disengages with God's law is in the same boat as the hyper-religious world that simply turns this relationship with God into the following of rules. Instead, let us encourage us ourselves to let us encourage ourselves to see the law's demands and to realize we can't do it. Have you ever perfectly loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Have you ever perfectly loved your neighbor as yourself? I am guilty of both all the time. I have to see that I can't do it. I have to see my inability. I need to see my need. I need to see that I'm a sinner and let the law do what it's supposed to do. Let it point me to Christ. I have to long for someone else to step in and save me from the consequences of the law. I have to let Jesus' perfect life, his perfect keeping of the law, and his perfect sacrifice for us stand on our account. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let the law drive you to Christ. Receive and rest upon Christ alone and put your faith in him. And that's for those who feel the burden of the law and think that by keeping it, you might save yourself. You can't. So for those who have already put your faith in Christ, you cling to him, you trust him, you've been justified by what he has done. This is your relationship to the law. Let the law show you how to love your God. Love your God by keeping his commands. Say with David, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. How can commands be sweeter than honey? Because in these commands, we see a description of life. Because in these commands, we get a glimpse of the nature of our loving Father. Because in these commands are described so many details of Jesus and his perfect character and what he fulfilled. In these commands, we find the Spirit's playbook for making us more like Christ. In these commands, our soul is refreshed as we are kept from falling back into bondage to sin. These commands keep us from temptation. 
In these commands, we find wisdom and understanding. In these commands, God speaks instruction to our hearts and our desires by which we are delighted more and more by his truly good things that are holy and less and less by the shiny things of the world. In these commands, we see progress. We see sanctification. We see the fruit of the Spirit growing. We see an increase in love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In these commands, there is no oppression or suffocation, only the killing of slavery to sin. In these commands, in God's commands, we find life. As a church, as Christ's Presbyterian church, we don't want to be like the Pharisees. We don't want to set up our own tradition of the elders because only scripture is binding. Only Jesus can bind a conscience. We have helps, yes. We have the Westminster Standards. We have the Book of Church Order. These act to help explain scripture and are subservient to scripture. But if they ever clash with the heart of God's word, or if they ever become as authoritative as scripture, your job is to either push back against the offender and to reinstate God's word as the authority or flee this place of legalism and this place of death and go find a church that cherishes God's word and its divine author first and foremost. We are a place where God's word drives everything we do. But also individually, we need to be asking ourselves if we're Pharisees, do I love God and do I love to do his commands? Does knowing God's word and doing it delight me? Do I love Jesus? If so, then I will, as Jesus says, keep his commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands, he says. Or do I view my obedience to the law like collecting coins in a level of Mario, adding little by little to your bank so that hopefully one day you'll have enough to get into heaven? Or do I obey begrudgingly without any desire to please God? Now, duty is not always bad. Sometimes we need to correct our heart with our actions, but we need to make sure that we've not abandoned the gospel of grace. That in our failure, what Christ has done is enough. I'll close here with a quote from R.C. Sproul. And the point of this is that we love God by loving his law. Sproul says that loving God with one's entire heart means loving him from the very root of our being. That loving God with one's entire soul means loving him passionately, not in a tepid manner. That loving God with all of one's strength means loving him with all of the power we can muster. And that loving him with all of one's mind means loving him by studying his ways and his character as revealed in his word. Brothers and sisters, let's love the Savior who stands in our place. And let's love the Creator who has graciously given us a glimpse of uncorrupted life in His law. Let's be students of it. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are prone to be hypocrites with every good thing that you have given us. Please forgive us. Show us our inability that we might receive Christ's ability in our place. And would we be people who grow in a love for you and your word and your commands so that we would desire to please you? 
Would we love holiness? Ultimately, would we love you and our neighbors? Thank you for Jesus, whose obedience earned us the reward of life for all who trust in him. And would we live by his strength, by his spirit within us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.